PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts for Volume 89, February 2009. This month's research reports focus on Clinical Prediction Rules for Physical Therapy Interventions, Standardized Outcome Measures in Physical Therapist Practice, Muscle and Tendon Changes in Infants Born Preterm, Physical Therapy Health-Human Resource Ratios in the United States and Canada, Parkinson Disease and Focus of Attention, and Validity of the Harris Infant Neuromotor Test as a Screening Tool for Motor and Cognitive Delays. This issue also features a perspective on electrical stimulation using kilohertz frequency alternating current. For clinical summaries, invited commentaries, and e-letters to the editor, visit www.ptjournal.org. First this month, Clinical Prediction Rules for Physical Therapy Interventions, a Systematic Review, by Jason Benichek, Dr. Mark Bishop, and Dr. Stephen George. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Clinical prediction rules involving physical therapy interventions have been published recently. The quality of the studies used to develop the clinical prediction rules was not previously considered, a fact that has potential implications for clinical applications and future research. The purpose of this systematic review was to determine the quality of published clinical prediction rules developed for physical therapy interventions. Relevant databases were searched up to June 2008. Studies were included in this review if the explicit purpose was to develop a clinical prediction rule for conditions commonly treated by physical therapists. Validated clinical prediction rules were excluded from this review. Study quality was independently determined by three reviewers using standard 18-item criteria for assessing the methodological quality of prognostic studies. Percentage of agreement was calculated for each criterion, and the intraclass correlation coefficient was determined for overall quality scores. Ten studies met the inclusion criteria and were included in this review. Percentage of agreement for individual criteria ranged from 90% to 100%, and the intraclass correlation coefficient for the overall quality score was 0.73. Criteria that were commonly not met were adequate description of inclusion or exclusion criteria, inclusion of an inception cohort, adequate follow-up, masked assessments, sufficient sample sizes, and assessments of potential psychosocial factors. Quality scores for individual studies ranged from 48% to 74%. Validation studies are rarely reported in the literature. Therefore, clinical prediction rules derived from high-quality studies may have the best potential for use in clinical settings. Investigators planning future studies of physical therapy clinical prediction rules should consider the following, including inception cohorts, using longer follow-up times, performing masked assessments, recruiting larger sample sizes, 
and incorporating psychological and psychosocial assessments. Lead author Dr. Jason Benichek is currently enrolled in the Rehabilitation Sciences Doctoral Program in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. Next, use of standardized outcome measures in physical therapist practice, perceptions, and applications by Dr. Diane Jetty, James Halbert, Courtney Iverson, Aaron Michelli, and Palak Shaw. The use of standardized instruments for measuring the activity limitations and participation restrictions of patients by rehabilitation professionals has been advocated for many years. However, the available literature provides few recent reports of the use of these measures by physical therapists in the United States. The primary purpose of this study was to determine, one, the extent of the use of standardized outcome measures, and two, perceptions regarding their benefits and barriers to their use. A secondary purpose was to examine factors associated with their use among physical therapists in clinical practice. The study used an observational design, a survey questionnaire comprising items regarding the use and perceived benefits and barriers of standardized outcome measures was sent to 1,000 randomly selected members of the American Physical Therapy Association. 48% of participants used standardized outcome measures. More than 90% of participants who used such measures believed that they enhanced communication with patients and helped direct the plan of care. The most frequently reported reasons for not using such measures included the length of time for patients to complete them, the length of time for clinicians to analyze the data, and the difficulty for patients in completing them independently. Use of standardized outcome measures was related to specialty certification status, practice setting, and the age of the majority of patients treated. The limitations of this study included an unvalidated survey for data collection and a sample limited to APTA members. Despite more than a decade of development and testing of standardized outcome measures appropriate for various conditions and practice settings, physical therapists have some distance to go in implementing their use routinely in most clinical settings. Based on the perceived barriers, alterations in practice management strategies and the instruments themselves may be necessary to increase their use. The survey questionnaire and a list of standardized instruments used by the participants in this study are available online at www.ptjournal.org. Lead author Diane Jetty is professor and chair of the Department of Rehabilitation and Movement Science at the University of Vermont in Burlington, Vermont. Next, gastrocnemius soleus muscle tendon unit changes over the first 12 weeks of adjusted age in infants born preterm. By Dr. Mary Beth Grant Butler, Dr. Robert Pelisano, Dr. Deborah Miller, Dr. Barbara Radine Wagner, Dr. Carolyn Horiza, and Dr. Patricia Shawakis. Differences in the gastrocnemius soleus muscle and tendon have been documented shortly after birth in infants born preterm and compared with infants born at term. Knowledge of muscle tendon unit lengths at term age to 12 weeks of age in infants born preterm may be useful in understanding motor development. Gastrocnemius soleus muscle tendon unit lengths were compared at term age, at 6 weeks of age, and at 12 weeks of age in 20 infants born full term and 22 infants born preterm. For infants born preterm, adjusted age was used. Significant differences were found between the two groups on 
taut tendon relaxed muscle length, taut tendon stretched muscle length, and muscle stretch. Measures of 1, taut tendon relaxed muscle length, and 2, taut tendon stretched muscle length occurred in positions of greater plantar flexion in infants born preterm compared with infants born full term. Significant differences in measurements of muscle stretch were found between term age and 12 weeks of age, indicating that the tendon lengthens during this period for both groups. These results provide knowledge of musculoskeletal development of the gastrocnemius soleus muscle and tendon. Differences in musculoskeletal measurements are consistent with uterine confinement in the last weeks of full-term gestation. These findings have implications when examining the musculoskeletal system in infants born preterm who are demonstrating functional changes. An invited e-commentary to this article by Dr. Jill Heathcock and an author response are available online at www.ptjournal.org. Lead author Dr. Mary Beth Grant Butler is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Chapman University in Orange, California. Physical Therapy Health-Human Resource Ratios, a Comparative Analysis of the United States and Canada, by Dr. Michael Landry, Dr. Thomas Ricketts, Aaron Freyer, and Molly Verrier. Health-Human Resource Ratios are a measure of workforce supply. They're expressed as a ratio of the number of healthcare practitioners to a subset of the population. Health-human resource ratios for physical therapists have been described for Canada, but have not been fully described for the United States. In this study, health-human resource ratios for physical therapists across the United States were estimated in order to conduct a comparative analysis of the United States and Canada. National U.S. Census Bureau data were linked to jurisdictional estimates of registered physical therapists to create health-human resource ratios at three time points. 1995, 1999, and 2005. These results were then compared with the results of a similar study conducted by the same authors in Canada. The National Health Human Resource Ratio across the United States in 1995 was 3.8 per 10,000 people. The ratio increased to 4.3 in 1999 and then to 6.2 in 2005. The aggregated results indicated that health-human resource ratios across the United States increased by 61% between 1995 and 2005. In contrast, the rate of evolution of health-human resource ratios in Canada was lower, with an estimated growth of 11.6% between 1991 and 2005. Although there were wide variations across jurisdictions, the data indicated that health-human resource ratios across the United States increased more rapidly than overall population growth in 49 of 51 jurisdictions. In Canada, the increase in health-human resource ratios surpassed population growth in only 7 of 10 jurisdictions. Despite their close proximity, there are differences between the United States and Canada in the growth rates of the overall population and the health-human resource ratio. 
Possible reasons for these differences and the policy implications of the findings of this study are explored in the context of forecasted growth in demand for healthcare and rehabilitation services. Lead author Dr. Michael Landry is Adjunct Assistant Professor in the Department of Health Policy and Administration at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and Assistant Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy, Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Next, external focus instructions reduce postural instability in individuals with Parkinson disease by Dr. Gabrielle Wolf. Dr. Merrill Landers, Dr. Rebecca Luthwaite, and Dr. Thomas Tolner. Postural instability while standing, walking, and interacting with objects or the environment places individuals with Parkinson's disease at risk for falls, injuries, and self-imposed restrictions in activity. Recent research with motor skills, including those demanding postural stability, has demonstrated performance and learning advantages when performers are instructed to adopt an external rather than an internal focus of attention. Despite the potential benefits in stability-related risk reduction and enhanced movement effectiveness, attentional focus research in individuals challenged with postural instability is limited. The present translational research study examined whether the attentional focus effect could be generalized to balance in older adults with Parkinson's disease. A within-participant design was used to account for potentially substantial individual variations in balancing capabilities. Fourteen participants diagnosed with idiopathic Parkinson's disease who were classified as Hone and Yar stages 2 and 3 participated in the experiment. They were asked to balance on an unstable surface, an inflated rubber disc. In counterbalanced orders, they were instructed to focus on reducing movements of their feet, which was the internal focus condition, or focus on reducing movements of the disc, which was the external focus condition, or they were not given attentional focus instructions, which was the control condition. The adoption of an external focus resulted in less postural sway relative to both the internal focus condition and control condition. There was no difference between the internal focus condition and control condition. The limitations of this study were, one, mental functioning was not formally assessed, and two, comprehensive clinical profiles of participants were not obtained. The results are consistent with previous findings on attentional focus in samples of patients and people without disabilities. Subtle wording distinctions that direct attention to movement effects external to the mover reduce postural instability during standing for individuals with Parkinson's disease relative to an internal focus. The findings have potentially important implications for instructions given by clinicians and the reduction of fall risk. An invited commentary by Dr. Meg Morris and an author response appear both in print and online. Lead author Dr. Gabrielle Wolf is professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Nutrition Sciences at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, in Las Vegas, Nevada. Harris Infant Neuromotor Test, Comparison of U.S. and Canadian Normative Data, and Examination of Concurrent Validity 
with the Ages and Stages Questionnaire by Dr. Sarah Westcott-McCoy, Dr. Alicia Bowman, Dr. Jessica Smith-Blockley, Dr. Katie Sanders, Antoinette Meggins, and Dr. Susan Harris. The Harris Infant Neuromotor Test, also called the HINT, was developed as a screening tool for potential motor and cognitive developmental disorders in infants. Scoring on the HINT has been shown to be reliable, and several studies have supported the validity of the HINT. Normative values for the tool have been developed using Canadian infants. The aims of this study were, one, to further evaluate the validity of the HINT by comparing data obtained on U.S. infants who were developing typically with data previously acquired on Canadian infants, and two, to determine the concurrent validity of the HINT with the Ages and Stages questionnaire. The researchers also conducted secondary analyses of HINT scores for U.S. white and non-white infants and U.S. infants who had parents with lower levels of education and U.S. infants who had parents with higher levels of education. Education level was used as a proxy for socioeconomic status. Cross-sectional exploratory and quasi-experimental comparative research designs were used to evaluate the validity of the hint. 67 infants from the United States who were developing typically and who were between 2 and 13 months of age were recruited via convenience sampling. 64 of these infants were compared with Canadian infants matched for age, sex, ethnicity or race, and parental education. The hint was administered by raters who had been trained to attain acceptable levels of inter-rater reliability. Parents completed the Ages and Stages questionnaire. The researchers compared the HINT scores for U.S. white versus non-white infants and infants who had parents with a lower socioeconomic status versus a higher socioeconomic status. There were no significant differences between the HINT total scores for U.S. and Canadian infants or for U.S. racial or ethnic groups and socioeconomic status groups. There were high correlations between the HINT scores and ages and stages questionnaire scores. The limitations of this study were, one, the study used a small U.S. sample with limited geographical diversity. Two, small sample numbers also did not allow for comparisons of specific racial or ethnic groups. And three, the socioeconomic groups were created primarily using parental education as a proxy for socioeconomic status. The results suggest that the hint screening in the U.S. is supported on the basis of Canadian norms, and the validity of the hint in screening for motor and cognitive delays. Although there is preliminary support for the hint as an appropriate screening tool for U.S. infants who are non-white or who have parents with a lower socioeconomic status, more research is warranted. Lead author Dr. Sarah Westcott-McCoy is Associate Professor in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington. Last this month, a perspective... Electrical Stimulation Using Kilohertz Frequency Alternating Current by Dr. Alex Ward Transcutaneous electrical stimulation using kilohertz frequency alternating current became popular in the 1950s with the introduction of interferential currents, which were promoted as a means of producing depth-efficient stimulation of nerve and muscle. Later, Russian current was adopted as a means of muscle strengthening. This article reviews some clinically relevant laboratory-based studies that offer an insight into the mechanism of action of kilohertz frequency alternating current. 
it provides some answers to the question, what are the optimal stimulus parameters for eliciting forceful yet comfortable electrically induced muscle contractions? It is concluded that the stimulation parameters commonly used clinically, Russian and interferential currents, are suboptimal for achieving their stated goals. The author also concludes that greater benefit would be obtained using short duration, 2 to 4 millisecond, rectangular bursts of kilohertz frequency alternating current with a frequency chosen to maximize the desired outcome. Dr. Alex Ward is Associate Professor in the Musculoskeletal Research Center, Faculty of Health Sciences, at La Trobe University in Victoria, Australia. Thanks for listening. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.